Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. Mm. Today, we're going to talk about a big dog, someone that I think a lot of you will have seen a lot of his films because they're often quite major releases of our lifetime. Definitely. It's Paul W.S. Anderson. (laughs) 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 It's obviously, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, the maker of Licorice Pizza, which is out. Uh, Sam, uh, you're a fan, I take it? Yeah, of course. I mean, he is literally one of the foremost working American directors today. Certainly. And yeah, of our lifetimes. I've seen most of them on release, I think, Mm. since like The Master, which was 2012, something like that. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, they always hit. He doesn't really make minor works, you know, or even when he does, they're still huge, like hyped up releases or whatever. Exactly. Like you, I've seen everything that's come out uh, in the cinema. Mm. I remember seeing There Will Be Blood before the switch to digital on, I guess, I saw There Will Be Blood on 35mm, like everyone else who saw it when it came out. But now you've got to pay £25 to see one of three prints at Picture House Central to see one of his films projected. He's one of the only filmmakers who gets to do that sort of thing. Him and Tarantino, I guess. Sure. The only ones taken seriously enough. He is a champion of that as like a, you know, a form, a medium. Yeah. Everything he shoots pretty much is on film, I think. I don't know about Janoon, but certainly everything we're talking about today. I think digital. Um, I think his first short film, The Dirk Diggler Story, was shot on video, very sort of consciously as well, as part of its like mockumentary style. Um, since then though everything's been on film including his second like sort of major short film coffee and cigarettes cigarettes and coffee i can never remember which way around it is that it's basically the opposite of the jarmish one i think (laughs) yeah it's it's cigarettes and coffee (laughs) cool um yeah i mean that was shot on 35 even though the only copies we can watch online now are like extremely bad looking um sure yeah he's always been an advocate of film as a medium which you have to respect. And it's like a very tangible aspect of his work on like an aesthetic and sort of temporal level as well. Do you think if he was like our age, he would be like really annoying and be like, I got to shoot on film. Like, you know, Gulardi, give me the, give me the stuff or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, uh, yeah, I guess we should get into that straight away. Gulardi was the sort of TV personality of his dad. He was like a film announcer. It was like a sort of very like camp, sort of vampiric uh yeah it seems funny his he did a lot of adverts and announcements and jingles and stuff as well and his voice is in licorice pizza yeah he also narrated uh the dirt diggler story as well like you know yeah um which which speaks to exactly it speaks to the insidery nature of of a lot of his work from the very start, which has really come to the fore once again with uh, Licorice Pizza, with this sort of um, nepotistic casting, yeah. the casting of uh, Alana Hyam, the daughter of his high school teacher, who he fancied, who's also in uh, one of the biggest bands in the world, and um, Cooper Hoffman, uh, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. whoever, who are the two leads in this film, much like The Souvenir or something like that. But it's, it's nepotism as content. Or whatever, sure. as opposed to just ambient yeah. nepotism, which I mean, is what yeah. 
It's like a milieu <laughs> thing as well, right? Because all his films, well, most, He's of, from his, LA, most like... of his films are about LA. They're in LA, they're about LA, they're about the San Fernando Valley or whatever. These things mean nothing to me apart from through films. So <laughs> thank you for, you know, mapping this terrain for me. I mean, obviously film has like shaped that as a environment and the environment has also been shaped by film. But he has, you know, he's both the, the happy-go-lucky Californian classic character and also this kind of like child prodigy, mm. um, Jacob Collier-esque sort of hyperactive genius. He was so young when he was making like Hard, yeah. hard Eight, his first feature. I mean, it's based on his um, second short. He was so young, like early 20s or whatever. Boogie Nights, Magnolia. You watch interviews with him when he made Magnolia and he looks... Yeah. I mean, he's younger than us. It's very jarring, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. The, the <laughs> Jacob Collier comparison stands, man. Watching, But watching fucking the Dota Diggler story, I was like, wow, the cast is so many ages and like the production design is telling the story as much as the dialogue or whatever. It's like... I myself was congratulating him for being so young for like managing to make a competent film. Whereas like a few years later, it'd be like outrageously competent. Mm. The most competent, the most competent guy, especially in the nineties where being flashy and like the editing and like having a million ideas at once was like the plat du jour or whatever. It's definitely worth acknowledging straight away, I guess, that there's a clear break in his work between like what he did in the 90s, which is very modish, you know, Tarantino-y. Even someone like Kelly Reichardt made films in that sort of like mode. I think even something like Magnolia, maybe that's a bit more transitional, but all his work in the 21st century is extremely mature. I guess you'd expect that, but... Just extremely sophisticated filmmaking, which we'll get into in greater detail as we go and like discuss these films. This is the first episode where I've ever felt compelled, I think, to use the word talent on film grays. Crazy. Which is ridiculous. I kind of feel like that is a scam. Yeah. But I think looking at his films from such a young age, he's still a young man for the kind of films he's making these days. He's in his like late 40s or whatever, and he's like making this fucking sort of reverie about his adolescence <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Licorice Pizza is such an interesting one to be looking at his filmography from the perspective of because like it feels like a time when a lot of people I know have seemed to have fallen out of love with him. Sure. I've heard people, like some of my mates seem to think Licorice Pizza is like the worst film ever. Yeah. I mean, there are divisive elements of it for sure, which we will get into in due course. But I mean, it is a very pleasurable film. <laughs> That's the thing. I really like the guy. I like the, I like the movies, including this one, even though it invites you to have so many objections with it at the start. Sure. Um, but in terms of like the quality question of his filmography, like it's barely there. Like everything is so good. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> made me. some of my favorite films of all time. I don't know. Yeah. It's goated, man. He's made the film I've seen the most, even more than Singing in the Rain. What is it? Yeah, it's Inherent Vice. I've seen it about 30 times and it only came out in 2014. Admittedly, That's wild. <laughs> I do think that is just 
fucking banging. That's a brilliant and adaptation, yeah. I'm down to watch Licorice Pizza again. Mm. I'd, I'd watch Soon, all of like... these any day, basically. Um, I, there are a few first-time watchers for me here. I'd never seen There Will Be Blood before. It's one of those ones that is such like a monument of American, like modern American cinema that I never really had the right occasion to watch it, especially at home, having missed it at the cinema. There was one time that I tried to watch it at home, which was in the lounge with my mom and my sister. But during the first 10 minutes, which is largely silent, they um, just kept laughing. I guess like sort of like nervous energy. Um, and yeah, I just like never took the chance to rewatch it again um, or, or to try and watch it again. And pff, what an absolute masterpiece goes without saying. Um, sure. Magnolia also I'd never seen as well. I guess for the same reason that it like stands as like the final film of like America in the 20th century or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, we'll get into it. Well, we'll talk about all of these films at length. So, yeah. I, I guess they do look like annoying ass films if you haven't seen them. I'll freely admit it, if a 20 year old came along, I'm 28 now, and was making There Will Be Blood, I'd be like, fuck this kid, who does he think he is? Or whatever. <laughs> Straight up, I would. I think it's a really good filmography to look at. When I was watching Hard Eight for the first time in ages, there are shots in that that are in Licorice Pizza and they're in Inherent Vice and stuff. You know, you read the Adam Naiman book published by Little White Lies about him, which must be a pretty hard book to write, but um, it's going to be a lot of fun chatting about Paul Thomas Anderson. He might not be the most like ideological of filmmakers. He doesn't have much of like a theoretical approach to filmmaking compared to certain filmmakers from certain other parts of the world that we like. Mm. but he does have a sort of intuition especially with like composing shots and just brazen testicles man. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also grounded in like a clear American tradition and has contributed to that (laughs) you can say that again Uh, (laughs) what what particular paragons of the American tradition might he be uh, taken after would you would you like to have a gander identify him Uh, Robert Altman (laughs) So yeah, I think we're going to just jump straight in and talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film, Licorice Pizza. What a movie. (laughs) I don't think we need to really say what it's about. It's a tender love story uh, set in... (laughs) Coming of age, classic. Yeah. Everyone's favourite genre, even more than the documentary, the coming of age film is the... uh... I really don't like coming of age films. Mm. Um, Mm. And when I saw the trailer for this film, I was... To be honest, not really down it's in the worth, slightest. It's worth, yeah, mentioning, like, I thought this was one of the worst trailers I've ever seen. The way that they made every line from the Bowie song are hilarious. In Armand White's review, he was like, the minor hit, <laughs> Life on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way they sort of, like, visualised every line from the song is just so lame. Um, and, yeah, it just looked garbage, you know, like, really not my sort of thing. I think also hard not to be slightly cynical about the casting as well. Oh, yeah. uh, Which does sort of reek of nepotism. Mm. But, you know, when Ford started casting Harry Carey Jr. In Wagon Master. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what a comparison, man. Um, Fair play. Yes. Wow. And I would say, actually, that Cooper Hoffman, that, yeah, plays like the 15-year-old sort of uh, child actor come entrepreneur. He's great. He's fantastic. He's very charismatic. He's Paul Thomas Anderson talks about there's pictures of me holding this kid when he's like three days old or whatever, you know. Um, and obviously he worked very closely with Philip Seymour Hoffman, gave that man some of the best roles. Mm-hmm. 
of his fantastic career. If you compare this to like the souvenir with uh, Honest Winton Byrne, who's like, I don't even want to act anymore. Like, <laughs> I don't think this is for me. Um, but yeah, Cooper Hoffman is like a real natural. He's got him looking bare like Brian Wilson mm. and acting like Paul Thomas Anderson, kind of being kind of like snarky and cheeky constantly, which is nice. The other lead is Alana Haim, Haim yeah. um, of the band. From David Cameron's favourite band. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, Anderson directed like a bunch of their music videos, like nine? Nine music videos. Of their videos uh, between like 20, like after Inherent Vice, after yeah, Phantom yeah, yeah, sure. Fred. I can't remember what the story um, is, to be honest, but they're both like super LA people, right? Yeah. Um, I find their music pretty boring, but... I think really well the, executed. Yeah, I, I think it was the first time I'd ever listened when I got here and we watched some of the music videos, which are perfunctory at best. Yeah, it's like shameless supermarket music, I would <laughs> say. But that's fine, you know, it makes people happy. Sometimes some of them are really good, I think. But um, the videos he does are pretty artless, I think. Like, often it's just like moving camera in a studio or whatever. Mm. Or like, there's one of them that the song is so like... It's like an R&B video or whatever, like Nelly and Kelly or something like that, with like people talking on the phone and like, I don't know, he's not going crazy. Like, um, Yeah, he did a bunch of Radiohead ones, uh, a few <laughs> Joanna Newsom ones. I watched Anima, the like, I guess it's like 15 minutes. Mm. And I assume it's like three songs. Quirked up white boy with a little bit of swag, busting it down sexual style. That's... Not goated with the sauce, <laughs> Tom York. That's um, Tom York, who's like appropriately sort of weird looking as a screen presence. As a Paul Thomas think. Anderson protagonist. As a sort of yeah. Brissonian model. Um, yeah, the anima video film, whatever, Netflix's anima is like set in Prague. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's like a dance piece, really. That draws on like silent sort of physical stuff. I don't know. I we're not here to talk about these music videos. Yeah, I don't really, really like music videos um, ever. I like the China Divers one that's like Annette. That's cool. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, better at making epic movies. grand American <laughs> yeah. cinema. Um, I think he's pretty good at that. Yeah. Licorice Pizza. Yeah, it felt like it was going to be super underwhelming and like dropping the ball mm. and just self-indulgence and making. It's set at like pretty similar time to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's like both those films are about like remaking the restaurants that they used to like hanging out in when they were like kids or whatever mm. um and it's like super self-indulgent to do something like that or whatever especially like these are pretty much the only like american this was made by like universal or something like that mm. and same with tarantino or whatever whenever i watch a film with the universal logo at the beginning i think i'm being trolled by like a fake streaming website <laughs> 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 even if i'm in the cinema <laughs> But it's interesting because they both came out like Sundance and like sort of super independent things. And these are the sort of lyrical tributes to their, you know, adolescence that they make, which I can understand people having absolutely no time for. And I can't hack it with Souvenir. I know that it feels like the answer to this question, did you like, so did you like this film is therefore going to be no. But I know that you actually really loved it. And I also really loved Licorice Pizza. I just think it's fucking blessed to be honest, like... <laughs> It's such a nice film. I watched it twice. Second time. It's like such a good time, especially. When, like, I still felt like it could all fall apart for me on the first watch. Like, I was just waiting for, like, that bad bit to be around the corner that's going to, like, make me really pissed off with it or whatever. Did not happen straight up. It was, you know, it's such a shaggy, non-story, badly told. And 
it's kind of it's not that long it's like normal length like 135 mm. minutes or something yeah. like that yeah so much of the chat well okay i think there are a few points of discourse that we need to touch upon maybe the first one did you like it i I loved it yeah Mm. yeah, yeah. and especially considering how much i thought i wasn't gonna like it based on the trailer and it being like sort of cheesy looking coming of age drama um i actually really liked it yeah a few things that i think we should get into then the structure one of the main talking points has been about how like sort of meandering it is i mean you just referred to it as a non-story i think um yeah. <laughs> and it's also a nonce story uh <laughs> but that's the second point oh, for this like i feel like it's such a linear you know it's not really about like the events in the film it's just about the characters getting from like one point to of course another point and it does that in like a perfectly satisfactory and not confusing way so um i don't know i feel like that's a confusing I think because it's like mission based and it doesn't really hold together mm. apart from from the characters or whatever. That makes it sound like it's like a video game though, but it doesn't feel like that. No. Right? So many films are like that. They say, oh, and now we need to go here. And then it's like the action sequence. I guess there sort of is a little bit of like that. Uh, maybe it's entirely like that. But it's good though. Maybe that uh, leads to like the second point then, which is that about like the gaze of the film sure. rather than, um, you know, because <laughs> we're watching these things rather than like it being designed for it to feel like very participatory. Mm. Um, and like, yeah, so much of it has been about like sort of male gaze of um, Gary. Gary, Cooper Hoffman's character, who, yeah, is this like 15 year old and Alan Heim is, you know, I think she she says she's 25, I think, but at one point, let's slip that she's actually 28. I don't really know, like, there is how one to bit talk she, about this, because... She watches this is... him, like, having sex with someone else, which is like, come on, man, like, allow it. But, oh, Hal Ashby, I can't be fucking bothered, man. I'm not, you know, it was not a problem for me, basically. Ooh. I thought it was pretty jobs. Yeah, but maybe that's like, the issue, though, that as, like, male viewers, it's easy to, like, construe it as jokes rather than... Perhaps, like, no. problematic. Problematic, yeah. Um, and there are so it's, many, uh, it's very clever, isn't it, the way he's done it so that, like, the dude is, like, an entrepreneur and she's, like, older, but she's, like, doesn't really know what she works for him. I mean, Anderson is, like, depicting a very problematic society, right? Absolutely. Uh, and there are scenes that exhibit, like, casual racism, uh, institutional homophobia, yeah. Gender bias in various forms. You know, yeah, it's this a way more bigoted part. look at like um, it's a way more bigoted presentation of the time that he grew up and like facing up to it, as well as it being you know. Yeah, I, but then I don't think that's even necessarily correct because like in Boogie Nights, for example, which mm. is set in the seventies, also the end of the seventies into the eighties, Don Cheadle's character. Uh, what's his name? Fuck Swope. Yeah, a uh, reference to Fuck Swope. Um, his character is like faced with, you know. I just meant more than other, more than um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sure, right? but I just... Uh, Which has the sort of dream so... about beating up Bruce Lee and a sort of... Yeah. Because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so revisionist, it's hard to like draw the line on that one as to like what its actual social commentary is and like <laughs> what its... Or, like, what is conceptualization of, of... Yeah, this is it. Like, what its view of society is and, like, mm. what its view is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think is another important thing here. Like, is Cooper Hoffman's gaze the same as PTA's? Well, supposedly you know? he cast Alana Haim because he, like, 
fancied her mum, who was his art teacher when he was 15 or something like that. It's fine. <laughs> Not many people get to make films like this or whatever. And it's, you know, it has a whole bunch of stunt casting that can be pleasurable or really annoying, depending on how you approach the film. Yeah, let's run them up. Who have we got? I'm going to spend way more time talking about Tom Waits than he appears in the film. He's in it for like yeah. a minute or two or something. Yeah, it's, it's one scene where he plays like the sort of compare of like a sort of bar drama where he's yeah. like rallying all the patrons to like... He like directs a motorcycle a stunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and he says like, he says like, Jack in like the first 10 <laughs> seconds. The dialogue was clearly written by someone who really likes Tom Waits' music and knows what words to give him to get maximum impact. And I don't know. I don't know who he's supposed to be playing. Gave like sort of Sam Fuller vibes to me, mostly. Sure. He's someone who like supposedly was around in the silent era and has been doing this shit for ages. And as a butt was like, he's trying to paint a picture of like the sorts of people you could bump into. Yeah, sure. And so much of the like milieu of the film is like very young. Like yeah. Gary's friends are like even younger than him. Chill. Like yeah. they look like <laughs> proper children. Yeah, it's hilarious. Like. But I guess that's like part of the problem <laughs> in Analyte, you know, that's like a huge critical failure on my part, I suppose, because like Gary is supposed to be the same age as them <laughs> and just because he looks like you know, more like pubescent or whatever. Sure. I'm like categorizing him differently. You How know, could you? I'm sure Paul Thomas Anderson, like when he's like framing these shots and these kids are like half the size of Cooper Hoffman, understands that there is like a disjunct, like he's yeah. presenting a disjuncture here. <laughs> That's funny to me though. Yeah. Um. Sorry, more cameos. Like, because it is a super cameo heavy film. Um. Benny Safdie plays um joel vox like uh, extremely on on the nose um like name for a populist politician he was real <laughs> is he actually real Joel wax yeah he was real. hilarious yeah <laughs> yeah in that scene also and the, we, yeah the assassin also, from yeah, nashville yeah exactly <laughs> in like a sort of Space Jam, Ready Player One sense, like literally like... It's fully that. It's so fully <laughs> that. walks in. Yeah. And obviously, I guess this also feels like an allusion to Taxi Driver as well. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, there are more He though. can't let there go, are so you many. I kind of rate Anderson for like sticking to the same influences. Or, <laughs> yeah, you know, he doesn't, sure. he hasn't really discovered, maybe he discovered Offals, maybe he always liked that. I don't know. But you know, he's still ripping Scorsese and Altman hard, like all the time. Like that whole... Safety bit was all the restaurant scene looked like something out of California Split or something like that. I nice. always forget about that one when I think of Altman, even though it's such a good one. Proper good. Um, oh, we've just got to the bit of <laughs> There Will Be Blood, which we were watching silently in the background. The silent film, uh, There where, Will Be Blood. <laughs> yeah, with the, um, where the oil well was sort of exploding. We have. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he runs it up with the cameos, and that is like very Altman mode as well, especially yeah. using actors that all, or actors, people, yeah. Tom Waits, for example, the Leonardo DiCaprio's and... dad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the whole Heim family playing themselves. Yeah, oh, come on. Um, and her character's literally called Alana as well. Yeah, and her sisters have the same yeah. name and stuff. It's. Well, why not? It's pretty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah. They're all good. Um, what I would say dear listener do not fear because i as much as i like this the rest of anderson's work is more thematically rich and basically more interesting i don't think there's an awful lot to say about this beyond it being like 
uh, albeit pretty nostalgic, uh, just being like a representation of a sort of transitional post 60s, 70s that as he sees it, like, you know, there are, there are more interesting ones to talk about for sure. Um, He's not paying homage to films I particularly care about. Now, I'd... so what films do you think this one's sort of, for the other ones, I found it quite easy to like compile a sort of network around sure. them. For this one, I don't... Well, he recreates a bit from Breezy, a film I haven't seen, which is like Clint Eastwood's second film as a director, okay. like, which had William Holden in. And I guess that's the film she's auditioning for. Right. Which looks fucking weird, man, to be honest. Um, <laughs> like a romance between like a hippie girl and like an old motorcyclist or whatever. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> weird, but I don't know. It's not my kind of thing of like teen romance. I guess it's not a teen romance. I do, I do think there are going to be multiple occasions to compare... Paul Thomas Anderson's work to that of Roy Anderson Um, and I guess in that respect this is sort of his A Swedish Love Story Nice. and it just so happens that it's one of his you know mature works rather than a sort of (sighs) throwaway um, sort of yeah oh there are more coming up I like this way more than A Swedish Love Story (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh yeah sure sure some of the more controversial points about this film and some of the elements of it that people may have found more alienating or jarring. Sure. I'm specifically talking about the representation of like, there's like an American, like Japanese restaurant owner. It's quite convoluted, but like Cooper Hoffman's character runs like a <laughs> marketing business or whatever. Um, and he's like working with this guy. I can't, do you remember the actor's name? I can't remember. Yeah, it's um, uh, John Michael Higgins, who's in a lot of, um, like, Christopher Guest movies. Oh, like, like Best that. in Show and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. And, yeah, he basically does this, like, you know, pretty offensive Japanese accent. It's like a whole bit, and I don't know, they really sort of want to relitigate this, because it's been, like, such, like, a discourse point on Twitter. Yeah. And for me, watching it, like... My experience of watching it was that the audience like laughs like at the character, right? From Anson's perspective, it's like a way of like showing the state of like racism and like cultural integration in that period, right? That's definitely how I took it. Where this guy is like, um, you know, trying to make like Japanese cuisine a thing as like a market, but is also culturally insensitive to us today. This is. <laughs> this is supposed to be like one of the first Japanese restaurants in America, right? Mm. Is the idea, especially in California, where it was such a thing, and it, it took this sort of chauvinist, like idiot, racist guy to be the sort of white face of it. Where he's saying, like in the press release, it's like, 
oh, don't worry, there are plenty of American dishes like available and stuff like that. But like, I mean, he wouldn't do the scene twice if he wasn't trying to make a point. Sure. I mean, it's obviously a sort of meta commentary on like coloniality in America, right? The yeah. fucking coloniality of cuisine. And much like the the casual misogyny and the casual anti-Semitism that you see in other scenes, they are still played for laughs in a certain way, but maybe not in quite a, ex, such an explicit way as in this scene, which is like very uncomfortable, but that's okay. <laughs> like, yeah. You, right. It's okay to have uncomfortable scenes in a film. Like, I fully agree, man. It's, what about the non-scene though? <laughs> Do you agree with that? Do you, <laughs> Do you agree with the grooming? Because that's what Hollywood is built upon, man. And it's not okay. And it might have been very <laughs> clever for him to make in his autobiographical film, him chirps in like a 27-year-old and she's like, yeah, I'm not really down, but actually you're so impressive with all your businesses and I can't help but fall in love with you. Like, ah, oh, so annoying. But again, like, I don't think this is like <laughs> virulent promoting of grooming. And I would even go as far as to say that the relationship dynamic in Phantom Thread is A, has a vaster <laughs> age gap and B, is far more fucked up than what's going on in this film. But that's just me. I'm a, I'm a grown man-ish, so I don't really have much skin in the game or much to be troubled by. On a personal level, I like Harold and Maud as well, so I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, I, don't, don't I feel like that. I'm done talking about licorice pizza now. Maybe we could just move on. <laughs> Great movie. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to rewatch it. I mean, it's one of those ones where it's like, if you see like a one-star review for it on Letterboxd or something, it's like, okay. Perhaps it would be illustrative, <laughs> illustrative to um, examine the film that you came in the game with, which you worked on for a few years. Sydney, $6,000 or Hard Eight, mm. which is a stu even stupider name than Licorice Pizza when you find <laughs> out what is just like a fucking juvenile dick joke. Uh -oh. Well, it's like a it's the gambling term as well. Yeah. Right? But well, they're all sort of uh, 
diagonal title. Yeah, we didn't even talk about why Licorice Pizza is called Licorice Pizza, so we may as well do that now. It's just like one scene in the middle. Best scene in the film, maybe. Yeah, the key scene, yeah. Nice. A key scene for illustrating the difference between the two main characters. Um, Would you say the licorice pizza is a structuring absence? <laughs> well, it sure is. Do we even see people play vinyls? Maybe at the radio station. Nice radio scene, gotta say. But yeah, it's just about the oil. Uh, Alana's character is like watching the news and it's about the oil crisis. And, and he's just looking at like the porn ads in the newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, let's talk about heartache. And about what it is rather than its name. (laughs) It's a fantastic movie. A sort of casino movie. One of these relationship character dramas that he always likes to tell. Where Philip Baker Hall plays a sort of ex-gangster or whatever who finds John C. Riley as a bum on the street in Las Vegas. He says, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And like, he'll teach him how to gamble. But um, unlike The Card Counter, this film is not about Abu Ghraib. <laughs> yeah. It is about um, destiny. Yeah, I think it's like a very fatalistic film. Like a lot of, especially his early work, I guess. Boogie Nights is a film about destiny as well. Mm-hmm. Biological determinism or um, phallic determinism. Sure. <laughs> More specifically, uh, Magnolia is a film, you know, about in theory. But they are all very convoluted yeah. stories yeah. made up by like a crazy guy who's got like a million ideas <laughs> a minute. Hard Eight is like sort of extrapolated out of uh, cigarettes and coffee mm. not to be confused with coffee and cigarettes Jim no. Jarmusch's film from no Rizzo in this yeah <laughs> exactly um, this only exists in like well available online in like horrible like digital transfers like basically unwatchable but yeah unlike the Dirk Diggler story like I think this was shot on film so in theory like all of his work, it should look sort of peng. Cigarettes and coffee, and this is something that Hard Eight has as well, Philip Baker Hall's character, he has a very specific idiosyncratic like way of speaking, where it's like, I am going to take the money out of this. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. now I am going to do this. It's very procedural, right? Well, it's Lieutenant Joe Bookman himself. <laughs> What's that? From Seinfeld, or the library cop. I don't amazing, know. Amazing. I don't know. Amazing, man. <laughs> um, Richard Nixon himself, <laughs> right, which is obviously yeah, why he cast yeah. him. Like, yeah, 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 of course. But in, in Cigarettes and Coffee, it's like, oh, makes it sort of unwatchable. It's so, like, formalist mm-hmm. in terms of the dialogue. It's like, ugh. In this, it's, like, still stylized, but I don't know. It's like post-Tarantino, like, crime wave. I guess it's between that and the card counter somewhere. Shades of uh, Rivers of Grass, like Kelly Reichardt's film man, from that yeah. period. Like, that is, like... It's the... mad that these are the only stories people seem to be yeah. telling. Like... Yeah, well, no, it's just, like... <laughs> I guess because of how totalizing, like, neoliberalism was becoming in that period. Sure. Right. Sure. End of history, all this shit. That these, like, sort of Bonnie and Clyde-style, like outsider narratives that are still like contingent on like the logic of money Mm -hmm. are so prevalent right yeah they're about a sum of money what the 90s in american cinema is if it ain't got dinosaurs in it and that's about the same shit as well (laughs) but yeah that's sort of the vibe for me for this one it's a very accomplished debut though it's got some nice moves. It gets a lot out of Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah, of goop fame. It also has um, Samuel L. Jackson in it as, like, in a very, like, Tarantino <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... like... 
that is what it is. Yeah. yeah. It? Um, I can see why this film was a hit. And it's so nice to get a lead performance out of John C. Riley pretty early. I mean, he's so touching in Magnolia. And he's beautiful as Herman Munster and Licorice Pete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I cloaked him straight away from the voice. He just plays like a lovable idiot in this. And I guess that's basically his speciality. He reminded me a like, lot of the master, you know, how they're mm, sort of um, simple guys. Fringe homies. <laughs> I mean, Harday obviously gave him the sort of purchase to quickly turn his other short film, The Dark Diggler Story, into a feature-length film. Uh one year afterwards, ridiculous. Boogie Nights came out. In general, there have been like quite large gaps between us. He's definitely not like a one film a year guy. Mm. There are clearly like long development processes. I think like Inherent Vice, though, for example, the reason it was like quicker is because like he optioned it like almost straight away when it came out in 2009. So then he was like developing it simultaneously, whereas other ones he's like, right, I've done it like now, like I need to. It's so crazy he got to make that film, Inherent Vice, a film I adore. Yeah, I mean, we saw it at the ICA, I guess on release. Yeah, I saw it with a mad amount of people the day it came out. Like a lot of people hated it, again, similar to the licorice pizza effect. Um, Boogie Nights, again, I think is like very Tarantino mode, like the editing, the style in general. Again, all of these like 35 mil widescreen, like they're paying. When I watched Boogie Nights, I started watching it on like a fucking horrible pan and scan charity shop DVD. Um, and then we actually ended up like renting it off YouTube or some shit Ooh, to just never like, done that. watch it on TV. Um, and the difference was crazy, man. I mean, it looks the same as Licorice Pizza, but if you watch this DVD, you would think, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman isn't in half the scenes that he is Mad, or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, again, this is like very like 90s filmmaking, I think, in terms of the visual, like cinematic style. And Magnolia maybe is the sort of culmination of that. The editing is really intense in both of those films. Yeah, yeah. More so than all of the other ones. The opening sequence of Magnolia, yeah, which is like a six-minute like music, Silent music film video parody. Oh, so there's that bit, but then there's like that bit's great, where it's like oh, I don't even know what to compare that to. It's like a F for fake or Guy something, Madden. right? Yeah, yeah, sure. it's like a like very like meta textual like framing device. Talking about how Primrose Hill was. Yeah. Uh, used to be called Greenbury Hill. Yeah, because of, yeah. This stupid coincidence. You know, you know it. But then after that, which is pretty jokes, I wasn't expecting that sort of form for the beginning. And I was really caught off guard, actually. Um, There, yeah, is this really long introductory sequence where you see, like, flashes of all the characters that will then, like, get to spend time with over the rest of the film, which are a bear. One is the Loneliest Number by Three Dog Night, covered by... Amy Mann. Yeah, so she does the whole score. The tune um, she did for um, Hard Eight was sick. That The editing in this sequence is just like, oh, I was really fed up by the end of it. I was like, I really hope the rest, it was two nineties for me. It was actually a really peng film. Yeah, that and There Will Be Blood were the ones that I hadn't seen before we started preparing for this episode. And um, it's, it's great. Tom Cruise is like the best. Uh, Tom Cruise is like men rights activist is like, probably the best character in the filmography um of tom of both <laughs> yeah i mean um magnolia and 
Eyes Wide Shut came out in the same year. Yeah, and he, he was... Right? They met on the set of it. Eyes Wide Shut was the longest continuous shoot of all time, right? It was like three years mm. every day. Um, that is crazy. Yeah. So Magnolia must have been an absolute relief. It was when Kubrick showed Boogie Nights on the set of wow. Eyes Wide Shut. And if that was like 97, it could have been in 98 or whatever. Yeah, so PTA like wrote this character for Tom Cruise. Had a huge falling out over the master, apparently. Really? How so? Oh, because he's a Scientologist. Yeah, yeah. He pro- that probably planted the seed, you know. Right. Well, was Tom Cruise a Scientologist back then? I don't know. Don't know. There's so many good characters, and like, I watched Shortcuts for the first time recently. Hadn't seen it when we done our Altman episode. Really good film, but I think I prefer Magnolia. It's a lot more straightforward. Magnolia like indicates like some meaning. In a sort of like theological shortcuts, way, the meaning actually. is like everyone cheats on everyone, right? And yeah, <laughs> it's a very nihilistic film with a very bleak ending. The end of this is like a plague, but like you know, a biblical plague at least indicates the presence of God. Yes. Whereas shortcuts is just like fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's really wears its like links to Altman on its sleeve as well, though. You know, sure. the casting of I Julianne see. Moore. Yeah casting of like henry gibson who's like one of the singers in nashville like appears um in it um michael murphy i want to say his name is tanner like, himself what an extremely generic name um yeah like a standard like altman stock company player um appears at least he rips off a bit from i am cuba in this film as well you know oh what are you saying oh no that's a boogie nights fuck what, the sort of crane shot? The, when it goes into the pool and stuff. Again, I just, I would think of that as like an extension yeah. of Altman's like cinematographic style, especially the long goodbye where it's all about like the camera moving. No, this one goes from down. the top of a building to all the way down. Yeah, yeah, I know um, <laughs> Cuba goes underwater, but like it's yeah, the, sure. you know, it's the same like style. I think there's definitely like a break of the Magnolia in the style of these films. <laughs> two years after the turn of the millennium having survived the apocalypse paul thomas anderson made a film with adam sandler something he like used to take the piss about when he was like doing the press for magnolia right and oh, was like what are you gonna do <laughs> yeah. next and he's like i'm probably gonna make a film with adam sandler and everyone's like haha like hilarious I mean, this is, yeah, we're talking about Punch Drunk Love here. A film with, it's sort of like Charlie Kaufman mode, sort of like oblique, like symbolist, like... Sure. You know. The new American eccentricity. Yes. That's a, that was the Wikipedia some, article. Something is. like that, yeah. Which is definitely a thing. Like, yeah, oh, sure. Quirky. It's like semi... There is moments where it's like, oh, this is rather Brechtian. I, I was thinking that in the first like 30 seconds on, on this rewatch. And then like almost immediately there's like a car crash at like Jerry Bruckheimer or whatever, like 
spinning down the street and it's like, okay, fine, it's not Brechtian, it's <laughs> New American Weird or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, Make Brecht lit again. <laughs> it's... Uh, it is lit, though. Yeah, I... It, it touches on, like, Jerry Lewis and mm. Charlie Chaplin and these sorts of things, you know. Sure. It's like, I don't know, you've seen, like, Stranger Than Fiction. Yeah, that, like, I certainly will, have, yeah, yeah, I feel like this is the same thing. Also, it sort of made me think of um, a film that I tried to watch recently, Steven Soderbergh's The Limey, which was... Um, unwatchable damn uh damn. And, but that's like a real like sort of backlot smoke film right okay, yeah sure um where it's like it's always sunny in philadelphia or something mm-hmm. where it's like they're literally shooting this in a backlot the whole time it's fine but like that is what this film is it's sort of paradoxical because he's got like one of the biggest stars yeah. in like contemporary like movies damn straight um in adam sandler but it's also like so stripped back like largely set in like warehouses alleys Mm. and not in like a like artful like noirish way and not in a sort of jack tatty playtime way really no but it's not framed like that no it doesn't gesture towards that at all there's more playtime in licorice pizza i would say there's that bit when he gets arrested and then alana's on like the other side of the glass and it looks exactly like a shot from playtime when she's miming trying to get him to recognize her sick in this it doesn't feel like that No, but it does Um, have the it snatches a bit from ulo's holiday actually Oh, I, need to watch that. I need to watch that one. Um, and that whole Hawaii sequence is just magical. Ah, uh, yeah. When you know they have the big street parade and he calls her from the phone booth and they listen to the tune from fucking it's a bit, Popeye. Um, lost Come it. Oh, on. yeah, that's crazy. And that, again, <laughs> runs for so long. It's like yeah. just when you think it's about to finish, it's like <laughs> the fourth verse comes in and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's another minute of montage, yeah. It's fantastic it's, song. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's, you know, shout out Shelley Duvall's classic, <sighs> classic screen performance. Um, that sequence also sort of reminded me of like Lost in Translation as another sort of strain of American cinema in this period. Although <laughs> in terms of the sort of gender dynamics of the films, like this is so incomparable it's not even funny um i think adam sandler's like sort of frustrated like man character in this is like pretty hard to he's he's <sighs> pretty toxic yeah but, yeah i think um, that's the word i'm looking it's, it's, for it's quite it's quite empathetic as well though at the same time mm. you know he's like um sad movie like he's, uh, <laughs> it's not like um I don't know. You know what it is like. Does he do other films where he plays like sort of? Of course he does. No, I think this was notable at the time for sure. Yeah. For being a like non-comedy role for him. I'm talking about does he play like sort of? Yeah, Rain Over Me. Have you seen that? No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it's the film where he um he listens to Pearl Jam play Shadow of the Colossus after he loses his family in 9/11 or whatever. Oh, film. But again, he's like acting hard in a sort of mm. Robin Williams <laughs> okay. sense, right? But in this is so sweet and, again, nicely done, I think. 
I don't think he's a sweet character. No, 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 but the film is like paying. Like, the film again. is like. Again. The, the <laughs> film views him tenderly, I think. Yeah, sure. Again, also worth noting. He hates his life, you know? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. really sure. peak. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, this film also features a great um, Philip Seymour Hoffman role oh. where he owns a mattress shop, sort of placing it within like licorice pizza continuity as well. He could be playing the same yeah, exactly. Which is Literally could be. Kind of annoying, but also kind of cool. This film sort of reminded me, to bring in the Roy Anderson comparison again, mm. if, um, <laughs> it sort of reminds me of Gilead, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it is just a film about, like, abject alienation. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. In, I guess, like, a different, like, stage of history. Um, no, but it's like but, it's like wrenchingly emotional, whereas like Iliap is like blank and like sort of yeah, sure, sure. Dry. But I guess I mean in terms of it like exist existing rather than like what it actually does or is like, right? It feels like a bit of a fuck you as a film, and I think he was like it's trying. To, he was like thing. trying to do something weird as, like, a sort of turn away from, like, being, like, a sort of serious, like, observer of, like, American life. But I guess it sort of does the same thing, but, like, in a very different way. I don't know. Some, like, red balloon shit. Okay. Fables. I have very few criticisms. Yeah, I feel like I've sort of run them up, to be honest. I really didn't enjoy it on the rewatch, but, yeah. Um, I think the films that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode are Stone Cold Classics. Yeah, here we go, yeah. Um, I definitely prefer uh, the second half because we're uh, really to the first Yeah. of the films we're going to be talking about have come out like since we were teenagers basically i've seen most of them in the cinema i didn't see there will be blood when it came out as i said at the beginning but you did about three weeks yeah (laughs) well i just kept putting it off and putting it off because i knew it was going to be amazing yeah you did see it in the cinema when it came out a couple of times i remember i saw it in screen two of my local cinema um coronet because like some lame film was out in screen one, but then there's a stack time. I think it could have been like June or something. Mm. Mm. Screen one. I don't know. We're talking um, what 2007, 2008, like January 2008. I oh, okay. I guess I've got a production date here. Myths of the near future. Mm. The Coronet is also where I saw The Master, mm. and that was a great cinema back when it was uh, like very classic, like. Had a balcony and stuff. But yeah, there will be blood. Memorable film. <laughs> I remember that and Wally both had like 20 minute wordless <laughs> opening sequences, right? Uh, wow, cinema. The beginning is so wild, man. <laughs> uh, it really establishes like the vibe of the film. Um, I think this is the first one of 
Anderson's film that has a Johnny John Greenwood, Greenwood score. Mm. Um, the other ones had been like John Bryan, who did like uh, some of like the Kaufman ones, which I think also like adds to their like sort of shared vibe. And he did a lot of Fiona Apple music. Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah, straight away the score like really establishes the vibe mm. um, and the use of like landscape which is just so central here. Um, and, you know, I guess going back to our, like, Ford one and talking about, like, Peter Wallen and, like, the dialectic mm. on screen, like, this is a film for that, um, where it's really about man, like, sort of wresting things out of the earth. Uh, it's adapted, um, one of two adaptations that Anson's made. We've already spoken about Inherent Vice as an adaptation. Um, this one's adapted from an Upton Sinclair novel, mm. Oil. Uh, neither of us have read it. I understand that it diverges quite a lot. It's way more political and is like specifically about like socialism and capitalism right. as like phenomena. Whereas in, in this there film, will the be politics blood. are like way more elemental. I would say, yeah, or, sure. Like, it's like sublimated. Yeah, um, um, it still has a sort of viewpoint, and you can't help but see it as like a terrible film about capitalism or mm. and like, like a- absurd you know the, yeah. he trades in these sort of unreal characters in quite a lot of these films this is the thing i think he takes from jonathan demi supposedly he has all these dialogue exchanges that are really memorable for being so unreal and like people behaving in such a theatrical way the daniel day lewis character hannibal lecter or something like that i right? think this is like sort of relates to what i was talking about in terms of um philip baker hall's mm. roles in those early films but I also think that he's become more masterful at this and it feels more organic whilst having this obviously, what's the word? Not theatrical, because that makes it sound like hammy, but like unreal, I guess is fine. Um, but like, <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's it's less clunky now, basically. Whereas like the um, <laughs> pinch and adaptation is basically the, just the words off the page. Like it's one of the most faithful adaptations of a novel I've ever seen. Well, it uses... Um, like a sort of secondary character as the narrator of the film played by Joanna Newsom. Hey. So that's like a one way of like importing Pynchon's prose like into the film. But yeah, otherwise it is a largely loyal adaptation. Although there's a crazy scene at the end of Inherent Vice um, that isn't in the novel. True saying. I read the novel afterwards and I was sort of waiting for that scene because like as far as my like, you know, how I remember Inherent Vice is so iconic and... Yeah, that's like a appendix or a sort of invention, but it so perfectly sums up the relationship between those two main characters. <laughs> I love Josh Brolin. Again, like a real two-hander that film, even though it's got a really sprawling cast of crazy characters, but that central relationship between Doc Sportello and Bigfoot Bjornsson, compared to the relationship between like Paul Dano and Day-Lewis or Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and the other two films. Yeah, all of these like mature works are characterized by these like sort of dialectical or sort of diametric relationships. Um, Characters being defined by their relationship to other characters, not in a sort of amorous way, but in terms of... um, It's a fun way to write a film. (laughs) Like, yeah, different like sort of power dynamics. Sure. Um, Howard Hawks. Sure. We need to talk more about There Will Be Blood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to say about it. Like, it's obviously like such a grand film draws comparisons to like greed and citizen kane invites sure. those comparisons on itself treasure is, of the sierra madre yeah as absolutely well. which is uh, a crazy thing to do but 
I think it stands up. Obviously, it came out around the time of the Iraq War, such a glib thing to say, but like it corresponds quite nicely as a <laughs> first decade of the 21st century version of one of those grand American narratives, mm-hmm. cynical narratives. Also worth noting that the film has like quite a large chronological or sort of temporal scope. Mm. Um, including like a big time jump from 1911 um, to like 1935 or something like that. Right? Uh, yeah, I think the dates are both set back a little bit, but yeah, basically, <laughs> I tried. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it ends in like the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, I think um, 1911 like, did like, come up. Gatsby on. mode. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the second date. <laughs> um, <laughs> It rings true, I guess. It's an easy film to understand. Yeah, I mean, it's a very clear parable and has, like, an iconic, like, sort of ending. I don't even really know what to compare it to in terms of, um, like, the bad guys getting away with it or whatever. <laughs> I love the Brahms tune. Obviously, it was, like, a meme. Yeah, sure. It's a joke scene, you know. It prefigures quite a lot of the shit in The Master, I think. And it's easy to see the relationship between his films and the films he loves, like Step Brothers and sure. these sorts of things. When you consider these sort of extraordinary, like really pushing it, mm. Jerry Lewis esque uh, scenes. Well, I mean, drawn out, ridiculous yeah. scenes. Yeah, I mean, The Master is all about characters like pushing each other, right? That one is like the thinly veiled, like genealogy of Scientology, where Philip Seymour Hoffman plays. The Master um, and uh, Whacking Phoenix in like the first of he two plays, collaborations. He plays films. Robin Williams' Popeye. <laughs> yeah, he, he does. He does. Exactly. So. He loves that movie. Exactly. Um, maybe that's why I love PTA so much. But I think I'm glad that he got that sort of violent Tarantino impulse like totally out of his system at the end of There Will Be Blood and it doesn't really return in his films. There's no more like brains and... Mm real hideous like exploitation filmmaking not that, that I mean, yeah i mean i wouldn't rule it out for the future but sure. yeah i guess it has been a slightly benign turn um not to say they're like more they are more restrained i think the master i think is <sighs> there will be blood's got explosions in it yeah <laughs> the master is a truly exceptional film i think it's probably his masterpiece the way Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, like, throughout the film, keeps saying to Joaquin Phoenix's character, like, mm, I'm trying to figure out where I met you before. He's talking about, like, in a past life. And then in the last scene, he's like, oh, I remember where I met you. Um, it was the pose. siege of Paris. The Prussians had been at the gate for four months. We were pigeon post operators. And then he, like, sings him a song. It's, like, unbelievable um, as just, like... I don't know, a sort of depiction of, like, a psychological study. I guess that's what all of these films are. Um, that one is so just It's just bad. unbelievable. Like, ridiculous. And he just takes it as well. He's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's been indoctrinated. Yeah, like. of course. It does present this religion as a certain type of way, right? Mm. Um, he did a lot of dancing around the subject when he was doing press for the film and stuff. He's like, oh no, like it was inspired by it, but like, I would never be so mean as to like or whatever. But it is pretty damning and pretty transparent what it's about, like Dianetics or whatever. And the flop sequel book, like that's a hilarious thing. Mm. Yeah, that last eye partridge, eye partridge, or like stratagem, right? When he just pulls it out of his ass and tells him this like incredibly Pinchonian, sorry, ding ding ding. Yeah, he did an adaptation, so it's fine for this one. Yes, yeah, stupid. I mean, it also draws comparisons with, like, V for the sort of post-war, like, Navy guy adrift 
Yeah. It remakes pretty much wholesale this John Huston documentary film about PTSD called oh, Let There Be Light, which yeah. is on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it recreates whole scenes and like dialogue from that film. Oh, hard not to think of like Ford films like um, They Were Expendable and stuff like that as well, which are primarily concerned with like the psychological effects of the war rather than um, the glory of it. Which, obviously, this film was never going to do. I think it's definitely worth just talking about the aesthetics of this film as well. Like, all of these mature films are so beautiful to look upon. Um, This one, it seems to capture, like, the 50s in such a sort of sensuous way. I guess part of that is, like, the film stock. But also just the colour grading as well. The paint. Yeah, I guess the attention to detail in the same way. I mean, in that respect, it draws comparisons with Phantom Fred, which just has immaculate sort of that set in the 50s in London. Anderson's like only film not set in like the San Fernando Valley, basically. Um, But that one also has just like sumptuous production design. Mm. And this one really, really has that as well. Um, And a deeply troubling psychology at the heart of it. Yeah. (laughs) And absolute, like, emotional torture or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the Lil John bit, you know, when he's being demonstrated upon. He's got to go from the window to the wall. Right. Like, and it is of that is why he done it, you know. <sighs> he's such a, like, a little piss taker. That, again, is put against, like, really real shit. Like, Joaquin Phoenix did actually escape, like, the Children of God cult when he was a child, right? No matter how ridiculous it is, you're absolutely with it the whole time. And, like, it feels very real and it hits despite being... absurd comedy film oh yeah yeah yeah. that's the thing like all of these he's just a remarkable writer as well i feel like we haven't really acknowledged that enough i guess that's why i feel more comfortable in this episode being like oh the bit where this happens (laughs) because like these are fully engineered by anderson as like a scenarist and script writer as well as like a director or director of photography or whatever he's (laughs) credited with on the picture it's another one where he pulls off these like really elaborate long takes where the sort of the camera doesn't move like up Mm. and down but just sort of like glides around same as the first shot of licorice pizza right Mm. where she's also a photographer and there's a similar scene where he gets into a fight in a a shopping center or whatever and it's kind of shot like that where it's following him around just bravura filmmaking which i guess is takes after sort of scorsese 100 percent. i think the same applies to like there will be blood as well where it feels like the camera is like compared to something like magnolia the camera is way more restrained but that doesn't mean it's chained down it's still mobile but it always feels like photographic at the same time yeah or like um it's not like forcing balls of steel (laughs) when it's like these outrageous behaviors and it's like yeah. <laughs> slow pan <Shut>. yeah <laughs> um i love the master i i would be with you and say that's probably the most accomplished one as like a literary achievement yeah it, that's the thing it feels like an adaptation of a book Dianetic. But, yeah, for sure. That isn't that after Earth or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> Battlefield uh, Earth, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it makes, yeah, we'll just push on with Inherent Vice then. So, like, I guess this was in development at the same time mm-hmm. as The Master. They're the only two films Joaquin Phoenix made since doing his, like, rap thing. Is that right? It's, like, yeah. toxic. What's it called? I'm Still Here. Yeah. And he took a huge break and then he came back and did these two films with Anderson. Mad different performances, both of which show, like, 
a lot of different sides. Both characters with like speech speech impediments, basically. Sure. sure. Um, out of the master, I mean, talk about Popeye. Like yeah. the whole time, he's like talking out of it's like one half of his mouth is like shut. Um, in inherent vice, he's like mumbling, mumbling to himself <laughs> yeah. and to everyone. Like I'm doing on this podcast. Yeah, right now. yeah, exactly. In tribute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they're both very stylized performances. Yeah. Also providing like a real emotional core to both films. Like we, he really like is the main character in both films. I feel like we've already spoken about inherent vice like a little bit on this episode. Wow, such a classic. But, yeah, it's so, it's so good. <laughs> Rewarding on the rewatch. Just like hilarious at every turn so yeah. really good bit yeah he uses the two two neil tunes that sound exactly the same as each other starts with that can tune as well ah. um ends with the epigram from inherent vice which is the um under the pavement the beach yeah i mean that's what the film's about like yeah. about that like trend in the same way boogie nights is like about like a transitional period mm-hmm. this is the same thing it's like the failure of 60. I mean, I'm watching out one yeah. slowly at the moment. Um, and the you know, it's about the same thing. Yeah. That's yeah. why the new pairing is so resonant. Yeah. Owen Wilson's character in this is a, a surf saxophone player who's like deployed in like various like subversive groups. And Pynchon has that really bittersweet, not even bittersweet, really just like bitter. <laughs> yeah. Like all seeing yeah. attitude to the. The hypocrisies and or you know even more cosmic issues with this time in America and inherent vice I think is you know it's considered quite a minor work of his as a novel but I mean it's so good as like a sort of detective spoof sure and this film does like feel both like Pynchon's work and like the stuff that it's spoofing the big sleep the long goodbye absolutely and you know, this is a bit of a cottage industry stuff like the nice guys. I quite like the big that Lebowski. film. The Big all, Lebowski. All these films, their plots yeah. don't make any fucking yeah. sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. Like these are all. But they all have a lot to say about this area that he cares about so much, um, and all the sort of colliding groups of people. Yeah, I mean, it is a great. It's one of, one of these things where, like, discussing it, I don't want to credit Anderson with like what what Pynchon has brought to it, but. Um, I don't know, compared to Boogie Nights Mm -hmm. or Licorice Pizza, Mm -hmm. there's definitely more like societal scope in this one where, um, especially as it pertains to like subcultures, Black Panthers, Aryan Brotherhood, like so many different like groups. Yeah. (laughs) Classic stuff, you know. I love it. I'm going to watch it again soon. Yeah, I'm going to watch it again soon. I get why my mum said it's the worst film she's ever seen. Oh yeah, I think for some, Shan hates it. For yeah, some people, sure. it's unwatchable, sure. but I just think it's very pleasurable. Um, after Inherent Vice, the year afterwards, having worked on like four films by this point with Johnny Greenwood, um, Anderson followed Greenwood to Rajasthan, where he was recording an album with this like Israeli composer Shai Ben Zer, and this um, like Rajasthani ensemble in this like mountain fort it's like a very straightforward documentary um there are no like formal hallmarks to it um it's it's not a film i i it feels like it's not like it feels like he's just like sitting there with a camcorder like 
big circle jam and he's like sitting in the middle the camera's like rotating around the musicians the footage is great it's definitely like a lesser work yeah Um, they sound pretty interesting the fact that there are no like sort of formal hallmarks to it means like to me it literally could have been made by anyone right right he was just like taking a holiday sure fine he's allowed to do that yeah of course um, just doing cool shit with his homies. Yeah, and then before Licorice Pizza, I think we've got one more feature to Is that talk a fact? about. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got Phantom Fred, which we've already sort of touched upon its stylistic and sort of performative achievements. Um, Daniel Day Lewis's last film. Is that right? Did he uh, retire? He retired. After? Yeah. Great. Stays retired. He apparently came up with the name Reynolds Woodcock. For the protagonist of this film. Oh, so would God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is that as well. Yeah. It fully is that, man. Um, it's a weird film in that, like, it's very funny. Um, yes. And, like, feels like a satire. Yeah. Has, like, the offals touch. The, like, Hitchcock, like, swooping down from the balcony camera. All the, you know, the notorious shot. Like, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, right. Like, it's got, yeah. It's, it's a peng film. Like, um, <laughs> I've said that about every film. Yeah, in this yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this, yeah. I mean, I can understand why people love it. Sorry, I've already said that. Time. I understand why I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Vicky Creeps and Leslie Manville are so fantastic. It's quite a profound film. Again, yeah, again, it's like a perverse psychological study. Yeah. Um, I, it's it's not about Munchausen syndrome, right? Because that's where you pretend you're ill. Right. Whereas this is like he 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 decides he's like compliant with like yeah. being poisoned because he's, he <laughs> he's better when he's sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean it's a great, and he made it because like he he was sick for a while. And Maya Rudolph is like looking yeah, after him, exactly. him some soup, and he's like, "Wow, I love you so much." Yeah, like, exactly. Eureka moment, like this crazy period film. Yeah, it's a crazy frame because you could have that story with any setting, right? Sure. So to have the setting which he does, which is such a departure from his usual um, milieu is notable it is such a funny film about english people though man. <laughs> and their sort of foibles or yeah whatever, or sure. like gets them to behave in silly ways like weird about noise and like uh, <laughs> you know yeah specific about how the toast is buttered or whatever yeah. like well i think that's also like a class comment you know commentary as well of course rather than like it but that's like a huge part of the drama of the film there are loads of plays like this. Mm, it does feel like a play, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of mostly set in one house, but then there's like very ridiculous back projection driving sequences yeah, great. and stuff. <laughs> it's interesting that this is his most, I guess, apart from Magnolia, which by this point, like, is almost like a historical achievement 20 years ago. It feels like um, Phantom Fred is his, like most widely, like, sort of lauded, as you said. Mm. Like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know why that Maybe. is either. It's his most particular film. Maybe it's just in this country that it feels like it has a different reputation. Maybe I know loads of people who be like, "No, nah, I'd never watch that though." Make a watch a film about a dude who makes dresses. Like, hell no. 
I don't have this complaint. Yeah, I must admit, it's the one that I didn't re-watch, but I think I've seen it a couple of times. Hitting. Every time. I think I'm always going to love these films. I don't think I could possibly fall off at this point. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's been great to uh, uh, re-watch all of them, actually, and finally have the opportunity. If we didn't do this episode, I probably still wouldn't have watched There Will Be Blood, because I would have just kept putting it off. Yeah, because it's too... Like, too sick because I knew I knew it was gonna s- problem, absolutely it? slap it's sort of like the Citizen Kane thing where like I kept putting that off it's like you get to a certain point where it's like oh like when am I gonna watch that would have been nice to watch that in the cinema um, there will be blood to be fair but it's been an interesting time where like you read this Adam Neyman book yeah ish yeah I might <laughs> yeah I take the version I had was very hard to read yeah I think it was not a great book to be honest fair um, Little White Lies publication yeah absolutely riddled with errors that's a shame the analysis was possible but I think spending you know a couple of weeks watching all his movies and like Licorice Pizza is not like an average film or whatever you know People either love it or hate it. It's crazy how divisive it's been, actually. Well, but all these films, they're so particular and they're so auteurist. They're coming from one guy. He's the same guy in all the films. People say the Coen brothers are cruel to their characters or whatever. Fucking hell, like, this guy is, like, absolutely puts people through the ringer and is really raw. And he's, like, you know, cheeky as fuck in interviews, which are very insane to watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, who else have we watched Charlie Rose interviews for? Because I feel like there was at least one where I watched a bunch. But anyway, there are, for his first, like, five or six films, there are, like, 20 to 30 minute long interviews that are definitely worth checking out if you want an insight into, like, the production process. Also, they're a great, like, time capsule. Because he is, like, an interesting figure who's, like, developed as outlined below above as outlined above <laughs> there. um really sick but they do resist like real getting your teeth into them sometimes because they're just so pleasurable first and foremost or whatever and he buries the sort of um judgmental thing that a lot of ron howard types are very tempted towards again and again because that works is often a lot more rewarding than his films which often actually kind of flop but he's obviously a great he's you know self-consciously a great since the start of his career he's been <laughs> yeah, trying to be sure. the greatest yeah. filmmaker of his generation yeah. <sighs> it's so annoying that he kind of is like yeah it's annoying that like we have really fallen into the trap of doing another like american otter full filmography rundown but this we is believe a director. this is what you want Dylan. yeah yeah exactly this is the director for whom it is actually legit legitimately applicable yeah. It's like a sequel to the Altman episode, basically. Yeah, for sure. It's literally the same thing. Our next episode is going to be on films of Apit Chatpong, we're a Sethican. See you next week. Oh, fuck. Um, um, can't wait for that. Yeah, another but true auteur. Two huge filmmakers of my life who I remember, like, you know, actually being sick and will remember when I look back on this time. All right, well, stay tuned for that one. Uh, we're also going to have a patron running, hopefully really fucking yeah, soon. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's actually about yeah, to happen. Right. So we will post them up. Updates about that when... Um, Dropping soon. Yeah, when it happens. Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Lots of love. See you soon. Yeah. I would... Uh, yeah, I'd revisit these films again any day. And I hope you are encouraged to as well, dear listener. Shout out Paul Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Our most scabrous episode yet. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China. To myself below